This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Wednesday, January the 24th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Someone down the hall in the control room, because by the way, I don't have a door on my studio. I've been doing the show for over a year in the studio and still don't have a door. Anyway, someone in the control room just dropped a whoop whoop, which got me thinking about the insane clown posse. Didn't know there were a bunch of juggalos hanging out in the control room. Coming up on the show today, access to affordable and nutritious meals is a big issue across the country. Deborah Simon explains how Meals on Wheels is aiming to bridge the gap in Ontario. The Saskatchewan Teachers Federation conducted a one-day strike last week and there was a follow-up strike this past Monday. Journalist John Lepke gives some more context. And accessible housing. You know how hard that can be to find. So sometimes you've got to take things into your own hands. How can you go about adapting your own home to fit your needs? Columnist Ann Kamosi has some tips. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. A lot of serious on the show today. I promise you there will be fun to go along with your vegetables. There will be dessert, but even the dessert might be a little bit high protein. Let's start here. Top story of the day. The Bank of Canada is going to make their latest interest rate announcement in about an hour when the news breaks. I'll share it. The expectation for the last few weeks is is that the bank would cut rates, but some recent economic data, like last week's inflation numbers, suggest they might hold steady for a bit. Anyway, enough speculation. I'll share that news with you when it breaks just after 10 o'clock Eastern time. Staying with the economy, the federal government is developing a plan to keep economic ties strong with the United States, no matter their presidential election outcome. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talks about some of the stakeholders involved in the group. Including uh, businesses, entrepreneurs, uh, organized labor, uh, civil society groups, different orders of government to make sure uh, that we're ready to continue to benefit uh, as Canadians from a strong relationship with the United States. Former President Trump won the New Hampshire primary last night. He seems poised to easily win the Republican presidential nomination. Coming back to Canadian politics, a federal judge has ruled it was unreasonable for the Liberal government to use the Emergencies Act to quell freedom convoy protests in Ottawa and at the borders two years ago. Justice Richard Mosley says invoking the act was an infringement of constitutional rights. The government will appeal the decision. Here's what Deputy Prime Minister Chrystia Freeland had to say. I would just like to take a moment to remind Canadians of how serious the situation was in our country when we took that decision. The public safety of Canadians was under threat. Here's what NDP leader Jagmeet Singh had to say. 
from the beginning, we've said, we said, and we maintain that the reason we were in that crisis was a direct failure of Justin Trudeau's leadership and also other levels of government that failed to act to take the, the challenge presented seriously. Their inaction resulted in a serious crisis. I don't have a clip of Conservative leader Pierre Polyev. Hopefully he makes a public statement today, and I'll share it with you tomorrow. Switching over to healthcare, new survey data shows that 7 out of 10 Canadians are concerned about the state of the healthcare system. Laura Osmond has some numbers. The poll by Leger comes nearly a year after the federal government signed a new health accord with provinces to address the severe shortage of health care workers. Provinces are now starting to sign one-on-one -on -one deals with the federal government for the money, but only 17% of people surveyed said they felt the state of health care is likely to improve in the next two years. People in Alberta and B.C. were more likely to say their health care systems were good, while people in Atlantic Canada and Quebec were more likely to rate them as poor. Laura Osmond, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. There's going to be more healthcare talk in the second hour of the show. I have a few stories in the regional news update out of Alberta and Quebec in regard to the healthcare system. And then Alex Smythe wants to bring some of this survey data to the roundtable conversation with Ramya Amuthan and Nizreen Abdel-Majid. So stay tuned. Lots of healthcare talk. Like I said, there's going to be some vegetables on the show today, but vegetables are good for you. It's the middle of the week. It gets you primed to maybe let loose a little bit with the carbohydrates on the weekend. Let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on X at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Tuesday, you were asked all about bus service. It's been almost three years since Greyhound shut down bus service between Canadian cities. How has that affected you and your region? 53% of you said a lot, 0% of you said a little, and 47% of you said not at all. So definitely swinging across the spectrum there, although like Laura Bain mentioned in her response in the conversation, there are parts of the country, like Atlantic Canada, that have their own bus services where Greyhound never really touched the ground. So interesting on that front. A couple responses here on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Christina writes in a lot. My region is extremely car dependent now. There is no bus service available at all. Taryn writes in, they never operated in Newfoundland and Labrador. So no, Jody chimes in. It affected our community a lot. We have no transportation to go to or from here unless you pay a good price. Craft and Deborah comments, forced to move to the city. Crying emoji, it ruined my life. Yeah, Kraft and Deborah, I'll tell you something, living in uh, the big cities stinks. Okay, over to today's daily poll at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. I shared this story with you in the regional news update yesterday. If you missed it, I blame you sincerely, but go back and listen to the podcast if you get the opportunity. It's all about Edmonton increasing the cost of single-use paper bags to 25 cents at stores. I'd ask you to react to that story directly, but I think that would just sort of be... So I came up with this question. Have you gotten used to bringing your own bags to stores? Yes or no? Laura Bain, be honest with me. Take me into your kitchen right now. How overrun with you are you with reusable bags? Um, you know, I'm not that overrun at the moment, but that's because I recently went through and I don't even want to say how many we had. I feel like I'm pretty good. My partner, on the other hand, often forgets and ends up purchasing a new reusable bag uh, with the with the grocery shopping. So we had probably, you know, several dozen and I recently put them in a clothing donation bin, which I hope is helpful. I know I used oh, I to like work that. at a 
I used to work at a food bank and we were always in need of reusable bags to give I, out to clients. So I, hopefully they weren't just contributing to the problem. Laura, but, uh, I really, that's a great idea. I love that idea. Yeah, yeah, like maybe, uh, you know, if there's anyone from uh, who works for some of those organizations, I hope it's not just clogging up the works with those bags. But I, I think that where they have clients coming and they're giving things out, it, it probably is useful. But, uh, I, you know, I feel like I've adapted, as I say, for the most part. It's been quite a few years that the major grocery stores here haven't really had plastic bags uh some of them do have paper bags they're not really that great if you're carrying anything oh, heavy over no, a brutal, long period of time brutal. so very very rare that i'll buy the paper bags but uh yeah you know when i went to new york uh, about a year and a half ago it was shocking to be given a plastic bag with every purchase if you forget to say oh no i don't big i don't need a bag and uh you know it felt very wasteful um although i i did you know put some of those i did bring some of them home because you know from time to time they're they're useful oh, to have. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So just FYI, Laura, a lot of what you kind of laid out right there is going to be explored in a news panel topic on Friday with Michelle McQuig and Joy Gupta. But there is still a use for plastic bags, right? The, the, the idea that you can't take the garbage bags that you bought at the grocery store, store, like a huge bag of a box of plastic bags at home with you in another plastic bag. Like there is some irony here. Not that I outright oppose the removal of plastic bags, but you describe traveling. I love getting plastic bags when I'm traveling because that's where my laundry goes. So my dirty, stinky Dave clothes don't infect all my other clothes. Oh, for sure. And I, I mentioned, I think it was off air, I mentioned that I went to the Nordic Spa well, like, uh, yes, uh, yesterday, day before yesterday. And uh, so then, of course, I've got a wet bathing suit, wet shoes, and uh, maybe there's a more environmentally friendly solution, but really the plastic bag is a very, uh, yeah. is the most convenient thing to have in that situation. There are nylon bags. There's a lot of sort of waterproof nylon bags that do a great job for that purpose. But again, you have to remember to bring these things. And that's where I bounce the ball over to Alex Smythe. Alex, be honest, take me into the kitchen at the Smythe household. What's the state of reusable bags? Well, it's not the kitchen, Dave. It is the laundry room. Oh, and the laundry room. cabinet. And I tell you, oh boy, uh, my my mom loves to, to stash more and more in. We we constantly say, let's go through them. Let's figure out. Let's let's get rid of some of these. Because we have a we have two different sections. We have those uh, kind of disposable, what you get from the grocery store, those uh, cheap uh, um, plastic bags. And then we have the reusable section. And then there's also a, a subsection of the reusable section where it's like the paper bags that are a bit nicer that you can reuse. There, there's got to be dozens of bags easily. Um, I typically always tried to keep like two or three on hand. And I, when I was like in Edmonton and stuff, I would always just bring my backpack to the grocery store, stuff a couple of those big heavy duty reusable yep. bags. Because the yep. thing is even, even the plastic bags half the time, they can't like manage to hold up and, and contain all your stuff. I've had it sometimes walking back home that they're gonna rip and you're just stuck like my backpack full my other bags are full and i just got this plastic bag i gotta hold on for dear life and hope it makes it back <laughs> home with me but um and and the other thing as well is like you know you you get just bombarded with them costly especially if you do any at-home deliveries like an uber uh, grocery yep. delivery or yep. any of those you're getting those bags more and more i did it once over the last couple of weeks and it's like well here's another bag to add to the collection 
Uh, and then I also, like, uh, a year or so ago, I donated to the Red Cross, and now they're sending me, like, these reusable plastic bags. <laughs> like, hey, please donate again. It's like, I don't need these. Please yeah, stop sending them. This is going to make me donate less. You've angered me now by sending exactly. me this to add to the, to the laundry room collection. Yeah, I've got a horror story from a trip to Winnipeg around a single-use paper bag, but I'm going to save that for the Friday news panel. So that's in the business what we call a front sell. 48-hour front sell is a long front sell, but it's a front sell nonetheless. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Laura. At Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. That's the email address or the phone number is 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Hey, if you do respond to this poll, no matter which format, Feel free to take a picture of your bag of reusable bags. Make a little bit of extra work for uh, technical producer Bruce McClarion to throw those up on the show tomorrow. Sorry, Bruce. <laughs> Coming up after the break, food insecurity remains a massive issue across the country. Deborah Simon explains how Meals on Wheels is aiming to bridge that gap in Ontario. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in beautiful streaming audio at amiplus.ca. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Food insecurity remains a massive issue across the country. Meals on Wheels has become a vital service to communities nationwide. Deborah Simon is the CEO of Ontario Community Support Association and has a little bit more to offer on what Meals on Wheels is putting on offer in the province of Ontario. Hey, Deborah, thank you so much for making the time this morning. Nice to talk to you. Nice talking to you, Dave. Thanks for inviting me. Deborah, let's start with the context here. How vital has Meals on Wheels become in the last couple of years? Well, Meals on Wheels has always been uh, an important service. I think it's one of the more understated services. People don't really recognize it or see it because it works quietly in the community behind the scenes. But certainly during the pandemic, we saw a huge increase in the uptake of people wanting to use Meals on Wheels. Um, and uh, just by background, these are their services that are uh, generally provided by not-for-profit uh, or uh, community support organizations in your community um, and use volunteers to deliver meals. Uh, their services are subsidized slightly by uh, government, but primarily um, there's a little bit of a fee involved and uh, government does support these programs as well. How does the work go beyond delivering food? How are staff and volunteers bridging the gap with isolation as well? Right. I, I think that's the the the, the secret sauce in, in Meals on Wheels. I think people don't realize that it is way more than just delivering a meal. It's all about that connection. There are a lot of seniors for whom the Meals on Wheels volunteer who knocks on their door is probably the only person that they're actually seeing that day. So it is a way of 
connecting uh, seniors, particularly frail seniors who are, are really isolated uh, to the community. And uh, the volunteers that come to the doors are, are really the eyes and ears of, of the community support agencies. If, if Mrs. Smith doesn't open her door um, or if, if when you go to see Mrs. Smith, she doesn't look as sprightly as she did the last, you know, few weeks. This this kind of information is taken back and and reported up. So it's a it's a safety connection for seniors as well. Taking the issues of food insecurity, which are on the rise, and isolation, which are on the rise, how much strain, how much of a challenge has that been for providers in Ontario? It's a serious concern for many providers. Um, we most recently just did a survey with our with our providers, and over fifty percent of them indicated that they need to increase the amount of uh, resources that they have in order to be able to meet the growing demand in the community uh, for meals. Um, food insecurity is a real issue, and Meals on Wheels is actually. Uh, stepped into that role for the, and and certainly during the pandemic because of the isolation, but has stepped in and has provided uh, meals for people who would generally not be able to afford the cost of food, and uh, and I, we're seeing that continue to grow post pandemic where a lot of people are still relying on on Meals on Wheels to be able to meet their their food demands. Um, we're we're much like the food banks. Um, these the providers that are providing these uh, services are are seeing uh, challenges and being able to meet that growing demand, and and it doesn't appear that it's slowing down right now. So many clients and recipients of the program are really from vulnerable populations: seniors, people mm -hmm. with disabilities. What message do you have for someone who is in need but is perhaps reluctant to reach out? Well, this is a the service that we provide, as I as I was saying before, is is just running in the community behind the scenes, and and anyone who's in need of food or in need of meals need not be concerned about their own privacy or or um, or any you know uh, communication of what's happening in their homes. Um, these services are available for anyone, uh, and uh, the organizations themselves um, don't go through huge testing, it's really pretty much uh, an honor system uh, that you're in need and you have an issue with not being able to uh, get food, then you will go through the eligibility criteria for that agency. But they need to reach out. They have should have no hesitation in being able to access these services if they're available in their community for them. Mealsonwheels.ca, mealsonwheels.ca is the uh, point of contact if folks uh, do want to reach out and learn more. Uh, Deborah, this is such an important topic, and I, I really appreciate your perspective on this this morning, but I do want to ask you the daily poll question on the way out the door. I don't know if you heard that before the commercial break, but we're talking all about reusable bags, and I, and I want you to put me into your kitchen. What's the state of your kitchen in terms of the number of reusable bags uh, pop, popping up, uh, maybe uh, reusable bags in an another bigger reusable bag. <laughs> Well, thankfully, they're going down uh, now that you have to pay for it. I'm such a cheapskate. I don't like to pay for five cents for a reusable bag. So um, I'm seeing the numbers that I used to have under my kitchen sink dwindling. Uh, but still, there's still a lot of them. I, I've become, uh, you know, carrying around all of the the uh, usable bags, the ones that you could have in, in the trunk of my car. But I often find myself get into the grocery store without them. So yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, 
it's uh it's hopefully there I'm, I'm trying to keep it keep it down i've reached the point where when, when i'm visiting visiting a friend now i'll bring something over and they'll say oh do you want your bag back no 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 you keep that you can you can add that to you, you can add that to your stack now hey deborah thank you again for taking the time this morning i really appreciate the work that you and your colleagues and all the volunteers are doing uh please keep up the great work and stay in touch thank you very much for having me that's Deborah Simon, CEO of Ontario Community Support Association. Again, more information on Meals on Wheels, mealsonwheels.ca, mealsonwheels.ca. Coming up next, you are so well aware that accessible housing is difficult to find. Heck, all housing is difficult to find in this country right now. So you may have to take matters into your own hands. How can you go about adapting your home to fit your needs? And Kamozi has some tips to share. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Canadian real estate market is trash. There's very little supply and it's all very expensive. Then you add in that little wrinkle, that little teensy tiny wrinkle of finding housing that is accessible and meets your accessibility needs. Oh boy, it gets even worse. People with disabilities oftentimes have to adapt their own spaces to meet their needs. And Kamozi did just that and, and has some tips to share. Hey, good morning, Anne. Nice to chat with you today. Good morning, Dave. Nice to be here again. And really appreciate you taking us into your home here. I'm curious how this all got started, how this project began for you. Well, I have acquired disability and my disability changed over time. I gradually became more disabled. And for me, the big change happened when I moved from a walker to a wheelchair and I suddenly had to change the way I lived. So how did you end up triaging priority at that point? Because the idea of making your home accessible sounds daunting, right? If you told me today, Dave, you've got to do a full house reno, I would go into panic mode. So how did you start deciding <laughs> which, which room would go first or which space would go first? Well, I actually ended up having to move into a new location and adapt that location. But it really was survival mode. Like I needed to take a shower. I needed to be able to do things in the bathroom. So the bathroom and the kitchen, those became the two focuses. I spent two years using a wooden spoon to try and turn off my fan in the kitchen. And I was like, I cannot do this anymore. I need to be I need to live in a different way. And I also had moved from, um, we had catastrophic things happen and my husband ended up being in long-term care. So I was now alone. So I not only had to adapt to it being in a wheelchair, but I had to adapt to being alone. And so I had to become independent or else I faced institutionalization. And that was just like, that's not the way it should work. We should mm. be given more support, but that's unfortunately the world we live in and accessible places are not easy to find. So I tried to do as much out of the box as I could and and fight for the things that I needed to become independent on and in my activities of daily living. 
Yeah, you and I can talk about systemic barriers till we're blue in the face, but the reality is you still have to live your life in real time. You have to live in the real world while fighting for a better world. So, and you mentioned the bathroom. What, what were some of the changes that you made? What are some tips that you have to offer? Well, um, the big thing about the bathroom is to make sure that the floor is not slippery. Mm. Um, falls are the biggest thing that move us from independence to dependence. And, um, and many bathrooms look pretty with ceramic tile, but ceramic tile is rock. And if you fall on that, you know, it can lead to many severe things. So um, I focused on the bathroom, being able to shower independently, transfer to the toilet independently. Um, you can see grab bars there around my toilet, which are pretty standard code. Enough space for my wheelchair to come in and transfer. There's a door open in that picture. Um, I have a fully um, uh, grab barred shower, and I did some things in my shower to make it easier for myself. I put in thermostatic mixing which a lot of people don't know about, but it's it mixes the hot and the cold. So if you don't have full sensation, you won't get burned. Oh, I like I that. Also, I also did not want to be frozen just having a handheld shower because I couldn't hold that handheld shower anymore. Mm. I put in some extra showers. There's my roll under sink. My landlord would not let me lower the sink, however, so I had to put in touch taps because I couldn't always reach the back of the faucet. So those are the kinds of things you have to kind of play with, depending on how um, what kind of accommodations you can get. I'm, I don't own my own living space, I'm renting. So again, there's a lot of negotiation that has to happen with a landlord. You mentioned that in the kitchen, you'd been using a wooden spoon to whack away at your hood fan for a while. What, what, which, which, you know, I, like, I, I love the ingenuity, but it sounds like a big frustration. So what changes, did yeah. you, what changes did you want to make to your kitchen? Well, my kitchen, I love what I did with my kitchen, and it's not very expensive. I put all my dishes in drawers, and um, this was accomplished by using 100 pound weights there's my drawer system and I pretty much have my everything I need to cook in those drawers and um, it, they're 100 pound weights and you can see their full extension so they they pull out fully so I can see everything in the drawer but they also can carry a lot of weight which most standard kitchen drawers do not do and that was simply exchanging the sliders on the side to make sure they could carry weight but also fully extend and the top two drawers on that side I have as working spaces and there's my pull-out pantry so all my food is in a pull-out uh, pantry where the drawers pull out and there are cupboards my landlord said you have to have cupboards but basically I say those are for the standing guests so I put things in there that people who come over who stand can reach and um, some of them have office supplies in them they don't even have kitchen stuff there's some other things there. I think uh, we have a few more pictures of my cooktop, and you should be able to see underneath my cooktop, I put the switches for the fan and the light above my cooktop. So there's my cooktop, and there's a pot filler. So I had burned, <laughs> spilled, I don't know how many pots of water trying to carry them on my wheelchair. 
So I put a pot filler to fill pots on top of my cooktop. And right under my cooktop to the right, I have all the switches for the fan and the um, and the light. And this is my wall oven. So again, I made a, a, a side opening wall oven. Most of them open down. And if you're in a wheelchair, there's my switches, by the way, um, un- under my cooktop. And I put that little tray under my wall oven. So when I have a hot thing in the oven, I don't have to put it on my legs and burn them, which I've already mm. done a number mm. of times. So that I've never seen that little pull-out um, a drawer under a cooktop anywhere. And that was just a simple little thing in the way they constructed those um, drawers under the cooktop. I asked for one that could double as a tray. And and those, I haven't found those in books. Um, I I did look at many books. I talked to many people. I I looked at codes, but codes are they don't really work with the flow of being mm-hmm. independent. Mm-hmm. Like there's nowhere a code that says don't put a a a, a fan or a lamp or, or a light above a stove down low. There's there's no code there. So of course uh, for all my switches, I put them up up uh, down low and my plugs up high. The interesting thing, Dave, is the number of people that have come in my apartment and said, I love your plugs being up high. Like not too many people like to bend down to the floor to plug in yeah, a plug. Yeah. You know, and so that's a uni what what I'm really doing here is what's called universal design. And and I needed to age in place and I needed something that would work universally because I have uh, caregivers that come and help me. They don't want to be down low. So like, there's my plug again. You can see I also put a plug there as well as my switches. Everything is easy at my fingertips. A lot of that is the planning for your electrical. There's another wall um, uh, switch and you can see my wall plug is very close to my switches, so is my thermostat. And I did something really simple with my switching. It's called, um, I forget the actual technical term, but my plugs are half hot, which means that the bottom plug in my living room is always on but controlled by a switch. So I can plug all my lights into that bottom plug and hit a switch and all my lights come on. Because I have hand issues and I can't turn lights off easily mm, mm. so now i can just push a switch i kind of made a smart home without having smart technology um so i can push and i have the same thing beside my bed right here where i'm sitting right now um i have one switch that controls all the lights in my bedroom and that's that's due to that half hot switch mm. so one switch is on all one part of the plug is on all the time but the bottom half is switch controlled so smart technology also helps us a lot with disabilities and that's something we can we can we can really do to improve our lives and it really seems like you combined physical usability with some technology and some creative thinking here you alluded to your process tell me a little bit more about the conversations you had what you were reading because the the common thread across what you described in the bathroom the kitchen your lighting is that it was really well thought out, like really, really well thought out. I think that's a really prime example for a lot of people to take note of. So tell me a little bit more about your process. Well, I was living in a house before that was not 
accessible to me in many ways. In some ways it was. So first thing I did was make a list of everything that I was wrong, everything that I was frustrated about, everything that was dangerous. And danger and sa- like safety is a key component here. I wanted to live alone. I wanted to live safely. And um, so I, I made a list. Then I, I got books. I I went on the internet, although there wasn't as much on the internet then as there is now. Um, I also talked to people. I reached out to wheelchair users. Um, I reached out to people with compatible disabilities and said, what works for you? For example, I have a blind uh, in my room that was supplied by my landlord, but I couldn't lift up the blind. I couldn't pull the strings. I couldn't make it work. And another wheelchair user said, oh, get a remote for that. I didn't even know you could get a remote for a blind. And, And that did cost me a little bit of money, but it's been one of the most wonderful things to get into bed and go, oh, God, I forgot to put the blind down and I just get my remote and down it goes. Mm. Um, Not to mention that I couldn't physically put the blind up and down. Mm -hmm. Um, I I looked at the codes. The codes were woefully inadequate. Um, So I definitely wanted to meet and exceed the codes if I could. Then the biggest part of my job was negotiating with my landlord. Right. That was that. That was really difficult. Um, you, you need to look and see if there's grants available. In Nova Scotia, there are grants available. Um, make it. What I did with my landlord was I traded off things. So in most of the apartments, he was putting in these bar counters. Well, I couldn't sit at a bar counter. I didn't want a bar counter. So I said, well, how much, how much can I get for that bar counter? So I traded um, a wall oven for a bar counter kind of thing. And, and, and that negotiation with the landlord was key. There were certain things that he was not willing to bend on. He would not lower my sinks, for example. And that was really a challenge for me to figure out how to adapt to that. In the end, I put in these touch taps so that I can, I can just touch the tap and turn it on rather than have to reach for a faucet. So it's a, it's a process. Universal design is very important. When we're talking about universal design, we're talking about making it good for a child, making it good for an old person, making it good for a person in a chair, making it good for a person with mm-hmm. low vision. Mm-hmm. And you can you can really accomplish all of those things. And we really should be looking at building homes that are built like that. But that that's a huge conversation and one that is not going to happen anytime soon. It, it's brambling. It's brambling. There's moments. There's there's there are projects going on. But you're right. The notion of going beyond building code into universal design that that jump has not necessarily hit all the way yet. You're starting to hear conversations about visitability, right? That can someone with a disability yes. visit a home rather than live in a home? So it's progress. It's slow. It's hard. But and I think you've just provided a pretty good example of uh, what excellence looks like in terms of adapting a space to your needs. And I want to end this on maybe a little bit of a fun note here. I don't know if you've caught wind of the daily poll here today. I did. I I know that you (laughs) care deeply about climate and environmental issues, but I'm asking questions today about reusable bags. And not in a snarky way, not in a way to be dismissive of reusable bags, but take me into your kitchen. What is the state of your kitchen in terms of being overrun with reusable bags? I'll confess to you that I am currently overrun with reusable bags. 
Well, I'm probably a little bit different than everybody. I started arguing for reusable bags in the 80s. And actually, we oh, we actually were we actually were successful in changing our local co-op grocery store in the late '80s to cloth bags. We were probably one of the first municipalities in Canada to be doing that. I've been doing reusable bags for over 30 years, so this isn't a new concept to me. I've been asking for my um, groceries to be put in cardboard boxes. I I have a. Um, reusable bags like everybody but they're all well organized and i always have one in my purse i always have one in my backpack on my wheelchair i'm i confess reusable bags for me are a no-brainer <laughs> uh and Kamosi, just bragging here on national tv today just showing off hey and thank you for this have a lovely day talk to you in a couple weeks Thanks, Dave. You too. Take care. That's Ann, bye Camo bye. That's Ann Camozzi, a disability rights advocate in Nova Scotia. Coming up in 60 seconds, Alex will have the weather story of the day. But first, here's Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minutes. Strength in base metal stocks helped Canada's main stock index to a triple-digit gain ahead of today's interest rate decision by the Bank of Canada. Toronto's TSX index gained 110 points yesterday to close at 21,034. New York's Dow Jones average lost 96 points and the Nasdaq added 65. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 291 points, but Hong Kong's Hang Seng index surged 545 points on New that China's central bank plans to reduce the ratio of reserves that banks must hold to help boost the slowing economy. Our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.36 cents U.S. The Bank of Canada will make its first interest rate announcement of the year this morning. Economists widely expecting the central bank will continue holding its key overnight rate steady at 5% as it has the last three times as economic data suggests monetary policy is slowing inflation. From the Canadian Press Business Desk. I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. That interest rate announcement will come out in about 20 minutes. I will share it with you as soon as it comes out. Let's turn to Alex Smythe for the world of weather. Alex, confession time. Even though I work in this business, I look at the weather every single morning. I was outside late last night and I noticed that the snow turned into rain. It did not stop me from like sliding down my sidewalk this morning because I did not wear appropriate footwear for icy conditions. Oh, geez. I'm sorry to hear that, Dave. That's <laughs> never fun. And unfortunately... I didn't fall. Oh. I didn't fall. I've got, I've got okay. the sure footing of a mountain goat. Well, there you go. That's a positive. And another positive, well, the rain is continuing, and I'm pretty sure most of that ice and snow in the in the Toronto area is going to be gone by the end of today because over the next day, few days, we're going to have a series of wet systems in the region. So uh, any of the snowflakes that we may have received yesterday are more likely than not to disappear uh, by the end of today and tomorrow because today the Windsor-Ottawa corridor is going to see upwards of 5 to 10 millimeters of rain. So there's still moisture in the area, but the temperature has risen above zero. And so we're getting rain instead of snow. That system will move out overnight tonight, but another system will make its way into the area 
Thursday overnight into Friday. And when that system at the end of the week comes in, Sault Ste. Marie and Sudbury will also be impacted by that weather pattern. So it will bring more rain to the region. Ottawa and King Carton, however, because of where they're located and the conditions, they may see it more as freezing rain or ice. So there is precaution to be set there. Now, after that Friday system is gone, there is also a chance that another system could come on Sunday as well. Uh, the projections are still unsure whether or not that will be the case, but there's a system that's going to be building south of the border that may move forward, that may bring more colder conditions. So instead of the rain, it may be snow again. But regardless, as we head into next week, it will warm up. So even if snow is brought with that Sunday system, it won't last long, Dave. Right on, Alex. Thank you for this. Talk to you in the next hour of the show, sir. Sounds good. That is Alex Smythe at the Weather Desk coming up after the break. Festival du Voyageur is making its way back to Winnipeg. Community reporter Derek Lackey has the highlights. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Let's land the plane in the prairies. Festival du Voyageur is celebrating its 55th anniversary next month in Winnipeg. The annual event is all about celebrating French heritage. Community reporter Derek Lackey has some of the highlights. Hey, good morning, Derek. Morning, Dave. How's it going? Good. I was telling you off the air how much I love that every single year you put a focus on this festival because it's a really big deal. It is. It's it's huge for the Francophone community here in, in Manitoba. And, and it's just a great way for everyone to enjoy not only the culture and, and the food and the entertainment, but to get out and enjoy, you know, that that time of year, the winter when we're like, we're we're stuck the majority of the year and here in the prairies it's it's not it can be a very brutal time but for people to be excited to get outside and enjoy it it's what about living in the prairies is all about what are some of the highlights you mentioned sort of in 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 broad terms the food and the music but what are some of the highlights to keep you coming back every year uh, for me, uh, a big one, uh, being a food person myself, obviously has to be the foods that I grew up attending because I, I went through kindergarten through grade 12 in the French immersion program here in, in Winnipeg. And we attended Festival de Voyageur every year. And it was those staples that you grew up with, you know, going to Festival to enjoy a nice bowl of split pea soup, um, enjoying a poutine, um, you know, having the, the the beaver tails. But obviously the big one for all the kids is is taking le sirop d'érable and, you know, pr- pr- pouring that fresh you know, boiled maple syrup oh, on the snow of the child and then oh, watching man. yourself watching yourself roll it on a popsicle stick and being amazed that it turns into this popsicle that you just walk around and it's like, here, have this delicious stick of sugar, child, put it into your body <laughs> and go and go and try and behave. And it was just it was one of those staples that even as an adult, we talk about festival and my sisters are all like, oh, did you have some Ciro de Rable? We're like, yeah, we did. They're like, we have to try that every year. So 
we've we've actually tried it here in our backyard and it it takes a bit of practice and and stuff but you can you can pull it off for uh, non-bilingual uh, viewers of the show and listeners on the podcast, uh, maple syrup, but, but Derek's just showing off here, showing off his French, just being like, oh, I was in the immersion system. I lived in Montreal, Derek. I can speak some French too, although I cannot conduct this interview in French. So let's keep it on the English side. You've been attending this festival forever. How has it evolved over the years? Because 55 years is a big deal. You know, I remember I remember going as a child and um the interaction obviously they've they the sculptures have progressed in, in their creativity and their ingenuity uh immensely over the years. But you know, this this festival stays pretty uh, pretty straight with the with the culture and, and with the style because it is based on historical figures here in Manitoba from the Francophone community. So it isn't like technology has taken over and made it this uh, completely different, um, you know, entity itself. I mean, there are more uh, food trucks and stuff involved now. It's not just simply what they would make uh, in the large uh, festival tents uh, that you could go and and, uh, visit. Um, You know, entertainers have, uh, you know, augmented and and increased and, and and changed throughout the years but this is a festival i feel like it's one that is very well stayed very close to the to the francophone uh, and the voyager culture keeping it very simple uh, and yet at the same time very entertaining derek one last question here because you've had so much experience going to this festival what's your insider advice what's the best way to do the festival de voyager the best way to do the Festival de Voyager, because there is so much entertainment, whether it is the music and the performers, the sculptures, uh, the reenactments of historical figures and the contests, you know, from from the jigging to the to the fiddling to the beard growing competition, any of the competition, <laughs> you have got to get a, a Voyager pass as they call it and that's a full access pass every day um from beginning to end and and you've got to take the time off of work if if you have to and you've got to visit every day because it is non-stop beginning to end entertainment enjoyment and fun of not only the winter season but the francophone community derek did you say beard growing contest Absolutely, Dave. Every year, people that would like to uh, put themselves into the beard growing competition <laughs> must submit photos of themselves clean shaven as of, I believe it's December 1st. And they have until <laughs> uh, December 1st or December 31st. And they have until the beginning uh, or nearly the end of Festival de Voyager, where they would come in and show off what kind of beard they have grown in that time. And Dave, I have seen some amazing <laughs> in my time show up there and you're looking at this man going, but you shaved how many days ago? And it looks like he just came out of the bush for the first time since the Stone Age. Derek, it looks like uh, your red beard's grown a little bit here, but it's a little too well-kempt to be in part of, part of a beard growing contest. You know what, Dave? I I, I have uh, let, let my... Um, fun and fancy free 
side fly a few times, uh, letting the inner Viking of my blood come out. And I have let it go to the point where uh, you're surprised I have somewhere to put food because you can't see my mouth. Uh, we have toyed with the idea of putting some braids in it, uh, traditionally like the Icelandic uh, that I have in my family. Um, but at a certain point after you eat enough sandwiches and you're chewing on hair as well as sandwich, you kind of give up that that dream and you're like, okay, it's it's time to it's time for it to go as well. You know, you 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 look over at your wife and, you know, you can just feel that look of when are you getting rid of that thing? Is winter over yet? Is it time for it to come off? Yeah. It's, it's too much. <laughs> at, least, at least keep it maintained. I was uh, out of the TV business from the summer of 2017 through to the fall of 2019. And I'd been working in the TV biz for a while at that point. So it was my first opportunity to grow a beard. So from the fall of 2017 through to the spring of 2018, I grew a monster, Derek. A monster. But uh, it eventually reached the point that people were crossing the street as I was walking down the sidewalk, and I realized, okay, we gotta, we gotta get this thing in line. Yeah, it, when it starts affecting your social stature, you know there's a problem. <laughs> yeah. you're, 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 you're in Winnipeg. I mean, most people wouldn't bat an eyelash because they're like, oh, he's keeping his face warm. It's winter <laughs> in Winnipeg, you know. It's you know, which it, for this winter, I haven't needed to let it grow because you know, with our coldest snap we had a while ago, I think my son spent one day inside it when he was at school because it was colder than minus twenty seven, but. You know, for the most part, we still have people walking around in shorts like, this is beautiful. This isn't isn't winter. Like, minus, right now, January and February is generally, I remember shortly after losing my eyesight, there was a six-week span at minus 55, uh, not including the windchill. And it was like, okay, this is winter in the Winnipeg. You know, when when it's like you come outside and as you breathe, you can see the snowflakes forming from the moisture in your breath. Like that's Winnipeg weather. So like this, it's we've had this snow. But other than that, it's like, oh, it's beautiful outside. I was like, I don't even need my beard this year. Uh, you Winnipeggers are tough. February 16th to 25th, Whittier Park in Winnipeg. You can learn more by visiting AO. Dot ca that's h-e-h-o dot ca h-e-h-o dot ca hey derek little tight for time here so i don't mean to give you a lack of respect but we've got to walk quickly through your next topic there's a pretty impressive heavy metal band coming to winnipeg it's pantera alongside lamb of god derek give me the uh, one minute pitch on why you want to be there on february the 16th I just need to say the name Pantera, man. Um, that's one of those things I grew up. I'm a big metal head. I've never actually seen Pantera live. So this will be my first opportunity. Last time I saw Lamb of God play at uh, the Canada Life Center, the entire arena floor was a circle pit, which I was right in the middle of. Oh, my gosh. Fantastic. <laughs> so uh, it's not going to happen, obviously, this time. A little less vision this time. So I will be safely in the stands taking my niece to her first real heavy metal concert. She's seen Disturbed, but she was up in a luxury box. So this time we are down right beside the stage floor level. And I am going to take her into where she wants to be because she's fallen into my world. And I figure the only way she's going to get to go to these is I take her. And I I twisted the arm and said, okay, I'll take her. So I'm very excited to go and see uh, uh, Pantera live because uh, 
it's one of those ones I haven't caught, so. February 16th, Canada Life Centre, canadalifecenter.ca. Derek, I tell you what, next time you and I get together, I want a review of the concert, and then I want to talk about metal more broadly, because it's such an interesting subculture that is so musically rich and has so many sort of spider legs to talk about. Let's devote a whole segment next time to talk about heavy metal and, and your review of the concert. If, if I have to, Dave. That's, that's beautiful. <laughs> Just wipe away a, let me just wipe away a very beautiful tear right there. <laughs> uh, Derek, you're the best man. Listen, have a great time over the next couple of weeks. Talk to you next month. Sounds great, Dave. Thank you very much. That's Derek Lackey, community reporter in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Let's keep with the entertainment theme for maybe not quite as much a metalhead, Laura Bain. Laura Bain, you're not talking about music today. You've got Netflix on the brain. That's right. We uh, and you know I did listen to to my share of metal back in the day. Well, you know, worth, you, you uh, did you did refer to some forty one last week as a bunch of punk posers because you know yeah. you're a little hardcore. <laughs> Uh, but we're talking about Netflix. So uh, Netflix has extended its lead as the largest streaming platform, adding 13 million subscribers in its last quarter. Now, this was the biggest increase in subscribers that the platform has had to date. Currently, Netflix has about 260 million global subscribers. So... Uh, you know, related perhaps, the company has also exceeded revenue expectations with profits up 12.5% from last year. But this isn't just due to new subscribers. It's also due to ad revenue from its ad tier that it mm -hmm. introduced, crackdowns on password sharing, and price hikes. So all fun stuff for the consumer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, all beautiful things for people who uh, pay the bills. But Laura, you're right to identify the uh, the, the ad tier, the ch the cheapest ad tier. It's been very profitable for them because a lot more subscribers are making their way towards that uh, tier with commercials, and they're also getting a ton of monetization by selling the ad space. It it it, it is a frustrating thing from a consumer point of view, but it's been incredible for the corporation. Well, and perhaps frustrating consumers even more, they have announced within the last 24 hours that they are eliminating their cheapest basic ad-free mm, mm. plan. So I, I think driving people, as you say, like more towards that ad tier. But let's get to the Netflix news that I know you're excited Ooh. about, Ooh. which perhaps <laughs> kind of connects to the to the ad revenue. You know, there's some strategy there, but they just signed a deal worth $6.7 Canadian dollars, which will make Netflix Ooh. the exclusive home of World Wrestling Enterprises flagship series Raw, as well as other series like SmackDown and premium live events like WrestleMania. So this is a 10-year deal starting in 2025. Prior to this, uh, Raw has actually been on broadcast TV for 31 years and is watched right. by about 17 million viewers a week. Now, I got to admit, I'm not one of those 17 million, but Dave, I know you have some thoughts on this. Uh, Laura, uh, wrestling, you know, you know, I was saying to Derek that, that metal is this really interesting subculture. Wrestling is also a very interesting piece of the pop culture subculture dynamic because there is a hardcore fan base where wrestling goes, the viewers follow, but I actually want to go into the time machine with you about 10 years ago because this is a pretty landmark deal in terms of some exclusive offerings through a streaming service uh, by, by an organization that is typically relied on broadcast TV. But 10 years ago, World Wrestling Entertainment got ahead of the game 
in the streaming wars. They were one of the first leagues or entertainment companies to create their own exclusive over-the-top online network. It was called the WWE Network, and it offered live events, it offered an archive of events, and it was available all around the world. It was very popular, uh, it was very good, it was an excellent service, and it was something that actually spurned a, uh, spurred a little bit of a renaissance in the wrestling industry, because for $10 a month, you could have all the wrestling you wanted, including pay-per-views like the Royal Rumble and WrestleMania. By the way, the Royal Rumble's on Saturday. I'm super excited. Uh, or maybe, it's, maybe it's Sunday. I think it's Saturday. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'll be watching. Uh, but yeah, so, so the WWE has always been just a little bit ahead of the game on the communications front, and this deal with Netflix is a landmark one, and it once again shows the leadership inside the organization thinking outside the box and trying to be first on these things. And that's probably why they've been as successful as they've been for 31 years on broadcast TV and before that taking over the cable TV market. The, the people on the, on the digital right side and the right side of this company are geniuses. And they've been geniuses for about four, decade, four decades. Hmm. So it sounds like, because, you know, I, I have some people in my life who are uh, WWE fans, and I, I think that some, you know, I don't want to generalize, but some folks might be sort of traditional cable subscribers and have a bit of a tough time coming over to the streaming service. But it sounds like maybe you think they're going to pick up fans rather than lose fans through this move. Yeah, they've already had, a lot of wrestling fans have already had to adapt to it, because if you wanted the network in Canada, you still had to get it through a digital provider, generally speaking. So for the last year or so, it's been through Sportsnet, but before that, uh, you could just do it through a general cable provider. So th there was there was a lot there was a lot that you've already been trained to do as a consumer of wrestling to go to these digital services, even if it meant watching Monday Night Raw or Friday Night SmackDown on TV. You knew how to get the digital products, like the premium live events, the pay per views. So I, I think a huge chunk of the fan base is already well trained, and I wonder what the cross section is that already exists between. Netflix subscriber and cable subscriber, right? You talk about those numbers globally. It, Netflix is, is the granddaddy of them all. And I feel like there's probably already a lot of crossover that exists here. So this might be a pretty pain-free experience for most wrestling fans. Well, perhaps. I mean, you have your your wrestling right next to your Bridgerton, right? So obviously, <laughs> huge, uh, obviously, huge crossover there. Yeah, couples will never be fighting about that. Can we watch the Royal Rumble or Bridgerton? You know, it has royal <laughs> in it. It's kind of the same thing. Uh, Laura, thank you, you for go. thank you for this. Have a great day. Thanks, Dave. That's Laura Bain coming off the top rope with a great topic coming up after the break. A couple stories from the medical world in the regional news update, and then a National Hockey League roundup in the sports chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. Who else would I be? I'm. It's Wednesday, January the 24th, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the Saskatchewan Teachers Federation conducted a one-day strike last week and another one this past Monday. Journalist John Lepke gives you the details and 
There are a lot of barriers for people at post-secondary institutions, people with disabilities, women, people of color. So how can the culture change on campus? Elizabeth Moeller will explore the issue just before I jump into the regional news update. I promised you when the Bank of Canada interest rate announcement came out, I would share it with you. Steady as she goes, the Bank of Canada holding the interest rate at 5%. Let's get to the regional news update. Over to British Columbia, striking transit workers are back to work this morning in Metro Vancouver. The union has not ruled out further job action. More than 96% of regional buses and sea buses were affected by the 48-hour job action. That affected over 300,000 people and still no deal between the supervisors and Coastal Mountain Bus Company. Over to the prairies, a survey of Alberta family doctors suggests primary care in the province is in critical condition. 91% of doctors say the financial viability of their practice is in danger. President of the Alberta Medical Association, Dr. Paul Parks, says the government needs to take immediate action. Government has shown that they can see that there is a crisis in access to family medicine and that they need to make some difficult decisions and move on primary care. But what we now need is we need them not only to show that they understand there's a problem, we need them to act. Not three months from now, not six months from now, but right now. Over 1,300 doctors were surveyed. Over to Quebec, a Quebec Superior Court judge has authorized a class action lawsuit against 20 regional health authorities in the province. The suit is on behalf of residents of public long-term care homes that experienced major COVID-19 outbreaks. Lawyer Patrick Martin-Menard explains the crux of the case. This tragedy was not simply what we would call a thunderstorm in a blue sky. It was something that was the result of a series of negligent practices and uh, uh, poor decision-making by uh, public health uh, authorities and by those who were responsible for planning and preparing the healthcare system for the pandemic. The lawsuit seeks damages of at least $100,000 for each resident who was infected. And finally, in the Atlantic, a new University of New Brunswick study says the province is facing a looming teacher shortage. The study says an upcoming wave of retirements along with population growth create a need for investment. Lead author Ted McDonald says the province needs a holistic strategy. So we kind of have a double effect of, of expected declining uh, supply of teachers with a big increase in demand. So we're going to have to do a lot of work to try and get more teachers into the system and keep them there. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Lots to round up in the National Hockey League and the Edmonton Oilers just keep on winning after another win over the Columbus Blue Jackets last night. And Brock, you think uh, this has a lot to do with the coaching change the team made early in the season? Uh, kind of. Um, I there was a there was a bit of a thing in the media about talking about oh Chris Knobloch, the coach, gave them a a bump from taking over from uh the, his name has escaped me Hang Jay on, Woodcroft Jay Woodcroft uh and uh yeah and I I agree with that but I also think part of it Dave is due to the fact that 
these players had to look themselves in the mirror and say, who are we and what are we? And they've kind of banded together. And I know I'm kind of banging the drum and kumbaya, it's all good. But like the players did this too, I would suggest. And it's not necessarily fair to say, yeah, we did this for, uh, you know, Chris Knobloch, but we didn't do it for Jay Woodcroft. I don't think that's fair. I think the players just looked themselves in the mirror and said, you know, we got to do this. What do you think? Uh, does it have anything to do with the fact that Connor McDavid was injured early in the season, probably got rushed back too early to play in that outdoor game and is finally healthy and is in the process of chasing down uh, the league leaders and scoring? He's only like 10 points back of the league leaders right now. Yeah, I mean, and again, that goes back to the putting it on the athletes. When athletes are healthy and can do what they can do, lo and behold, here we sit. So, you know, I I was always a believer that, that Edmonton would would kind of bring this back, but I was sort of thinking to myself, would they be around 500 and now they've blown that out of the water and said, ah, we're just going to do a little 14-game win streak and just ho-hum, it, you, it's, you know it's going on. You know what's wild, Brock? Even after a 14-game win streak, they're still like 15 points behind the Vancouver Canucks for the division lead. I, I, that's such a testament to how well the Vancouver Canucks have been playing that the Edmonton Oilers have rung off 28 straight points and they're still way out of first place. Yeah, it, it's just... and. When the other teams in front of you are doing their thing and, you know, you get off to a bad start and you're always playing catch up. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would suspect that Vancouver will come back down to earth just a tad. <laughs> they, like, haven't they haven't yet. They haven't yet. I don't think they're going to be as bad as what we expected them to be, but I do think they're going to come back down to earth just a little bit. But the same can be said about the Edmonton Oilers. They're not going to, you know, run the table for the rest of the season and, and you know, have a 40-odd game win streak by the time this is done. I mean, done. Let's, not, let's, not, let's, let's, not, let's not count that out. Let's not count that possibility out. Like, it is possible would, they win 40 straight games. Wouldn't that be something? Like, uh, yes, I think that would constitute as something. Uh, Brock, yeah. you're ignoring another all-Canadian NHL matchup last night with the Senators beating the Montreal Canadiens. But once again, I forgive you for your slander of the two worst Canadian teams. That's all right. I, I, accept, I accept the reality within which I live. You want to talk about a marquee matchup going down tonight across the country on Sportsnet with the Winnipeg Jets and the Toronto Maple Leafs. You want to talk about a, a team... Teams seemingly going in two different directions. Winnipeg is on the up and up, and Toronto is kind of as per usual, stumbling over blue lines, you know. And and so this will be one of those games where it's like, does Winnipeg come out and just blow them out of the water, or does Toronto rise up and say we're gonna put this together? We'll see. But I, even as a Leaf fan, am putting my money on the fact that Winnipeg is probably gonna win this. Uh, let's say four to one. I'm going to put oh, my wow. neck out there. Oh, wow. Look at uh, this. I think Winnipeg is going to come in there and just kind of say, yeah, we, we're here. We're doing it because they are, they are on a roll and things are just going really, really well for them on all aspects of the game. So I suspect they're going to come in and say, Toronto, we see you, but we're just going to, 
come past you and score a bunch of goals. So Winnipeg did a, what... Winnipeg did a really nice job of treading water uh, when their top goal scorer Kyle Connor went down with a knee injury in December. They kept winning games. They kept getting contributions from up and down the lineup. He's back in the lineup. He's probably the most underrated goal scorer in the league. If he didn't play in Winnipeg, he'd get a lot more love. He's been a huge, huge addition to that team since coming back from what looked like it could be a pretty severe injury. And he's been uh, he's been really playing really well last couple of games. Hey, Brock, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thank you. That's Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up after the break, the Saskatchewan Teachers Federation conducted a one-day strike last week, and there was a follow-up job action this past Monday. Journalist John Lepke has the details. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv encountering a couple snafus connecting with John Lepke in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Lucky for you, I've got another edition of Tech Trends to share. OnePlus is showing off a new phone. Mike Dubusky has the specs in Tech Trends. From ABC News, Tech Trends. Welcome, everyone, to this very special OnePlus launch event. The OnePlus 12 is a new smartphone designed to challenge the latest from Apple, Samsung, and Google. But according to John Velasco from Tom's Guide, you wouldn't necessarily know that from the price. They make high-end flagship phones, but the difference is that their phones are usually undercutting the competition in price. That price starts just under $800, but the company says it'll knock off a bucks if you trade in an old phone. For that, you get an upgraded telephoto lens and OnePlus has added back wireless charging, now up to 50 watts of it. I'm happy that they actually reintroduce wireless charger, beats the iPhone, beats the Samsung Galaxy and the Google Pixel phones when it comes to recharging. Plus, an infrared blaster. So if you're looking for your TV remote to change the channel or turn up the volume and somewhere between the couch cushions, you have your OnePlus phone. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thanks, Mike. I do like that. I uh, dropped my television remote a couple of weeks ago and it shattered. And I ended up using my, t my phone as a remote for uh, the rest of the weekend until a new one arrived. What a remarkable technological time you live in. Let's go to the prairies again today. The Saskatchewan Teachers Federation conducted a one-day strike last week and there was a follow-up this past Monday. John Lepke has some more details. John is a freelance journalist based in Saskatchewan. Hey, good morning, John. Nice to chat with you. Good morning, Dave. John, uh, Mike Dubusky had that story all about telephones. Thankfully, your telephone's working this morning because uh, the Zoom gods were not smiling down upon us. So, John, let's uh, jump into no. this teacher's strike. Why have the Teachers' Federation taken to the picket lines? Absolutely. So, the STF, which is our uh, teacher union here in the province, has taken to the poll, taken to the picket line, and a lot of the focus has been on classroom complexity and then conversations about salary and the supports that teachers get. The government is arguing that the complexity of the student relationship and the supports that are available is not a bargaining issue and can be dealt with outside of bargaining classic misdirection tactics and the STF is saying no we, we need these supports we can't continue this work in an overwhelmed education system that is still one would argue not recovered from the height of the pandemic 
John, you mentioned the government uh, perhaps has been negotiating or not negotiating at all in good faith. What has the government's, respo the government's response been since the day of action last week and the day of action this week? Absolutely. So in media coverage thus far, the minister has argued that, that this is a line in the sand, that the government will not uh, negotiate on um, you know, classroom supports and that that's a school board issue. Never mind that the government took away the ability for the school boards to um, manage their own uh, mill rate, meaning their own ability to, to raise funds for these supports in the last decade. Um, and they've said they won't they won't negotiate on that. We'll see how that goes, because I must say this is the most de determined we've seen teachers at the picket lines. The last strike was more than a decade ago. Um, and this is also, a, and this is anecdotal, obviously, but this is the most engaged we've seen the public on the side of the teachers. How is social media playing into this? How are the sides utilizing social media to make their argument? Absolutely. So, uh, well, we'll start with a more traditional medium before we go to, to social media in that, you know, the uh, government put up things like a billboard saying that the average salary for a teacher was in the 90000 range when um, that's a bit of uh, there are lies, damn lies and statistics. Um, and there's a bit of that going on on social media as well. For both sides, there's a lot of posting about MLA salaries that are easily Googleable, um, and there's also a lot of, uh, should we say, creative accounting when it comes to what the monetary supports that students actually get is, um, and it's a it's the fact of the matter that within education, you're always dealing with what what do the papers, what does stuff say on paper versus what does stuff say um, sort of in reality or, or what supports actually are front-facing to students. John, I know speculation is not something journalists like to do, but where do you <laughs> see this moving forward? Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting, Dave, because the, the last time that we've had a, we had a little period of work to rule last year, work to rule meaning that, that work to only what's in your contract. And as with many teacher contracts across the country, um, you know, things like extracurriculars aren't actually in teachers' contracts. Um, the last time we saw a strike that was um, somewhat purposefully done around some sporting events happening in the province that teachers couldn't attend, uh, provincial track meets and things like that. Um, and really, it's interesting that it's happening at this time of year. Last time it was um, in June. Uh, the work to rule was in the fall. Um, it, it's rare to see, I would argue it's rare to see in this province to see a disruption of labor at this time of of the year, um, it's finals for high school students right now, for example. And so I, I think moving forward, it's we're, we're heading towards a period, you know, this isn't like we're just about to take a break for, for the holidays. Um, I would expect this to continue until there is some movement. Right now, I would argue that probably it's going to be the government that is going to have to make a move for this to be resolved in any way, shape or form. John, looking even further forward in the crystal ball, it's projected that Saskatchewan is going to have a provincial election this year. How does this story relate to that? Or is this a case of voters having very short memories? Um, 
Yeah. I mean, I, I suggested this and, and maybe cut to me in September and, and play this back where I'm completely wrong. But, you know, budgets come out in April. Um, I think education is always a hot button topic at budget time, but I think it's going to be particularly true this year. And I think it's starting to shape up that the NDP, the the only other sort of functional party in this province, <laughs> um, is going to make education a, a key bargaining point, uh, or sorry, a key um, a key election point as they try to mobilize people to get to the polls. Because as I said, I, I I have not seen the public be disengaged on the side of teachers. Um, COVID, I think, really galvanized teachers' voices to talk about the issues in the classroom more so than previously. Um, and I think this is a continuation of that. So I would expect to see an impact in, in the polls. Um, it would just be interesting to see how that develops over the next, you know, I'm not good at math, nine months. Yeah, math is a relative thing. Uh, John, thank you for this. <laughs> Always appreciate your perspective. Have a great day. Thanks so much. You as well. That's John Lepke, freelance journalist based in Saskatchewan. Coming up next, a conversation around education continues, this time post-secondary education, talking about some of the barriers that people are facing on campus. Elizabeth Moeller is going to have some thoughts on how the culture around colleges and universities can change to tear down some of those barriers. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The winter semester is underway for college students. You might think of campuses as inclusive, enlightened places. To some degree, that's true. It's not always the experience for students. It's not always the experience for faculty. Elizabeth Moeller has been navigating the halls of academia for years. Elizabeth is also the founder of EM Disability Consulting. Hey, good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Dave. Happy Wednesday. Happy. Made it through to Wednesday. <laughs> uh, almost, almost. It's still almost. pretty. I, I got a long day here. It's still pretty early on the Wednesday Fair. for me. It's even earlier for you because you're in Vancouver today. But maybe, maybe that'll be something we'll chat about at the end here. So, for sure. Elizabeth, there's been plenty of conversation <laughs> about barriers for undergrad students on campus. You and I have had those conversations. We have. But how does that expand to graduate students and other faculty? Yeah, so starting with graduate students, the thing in a lot of programs to bear in mind is that we as grad students are responsible in our academic curriculum for more than just classroom learning. So for folks uh, in professional programs, they may be required to do placements. For folks like myself in research intensive programs, you may be required to apply for additional funding and navigate those inaccessible spaces. You also may be required to teach. Um, so that's kind of where I want to start is those outside the classroom learning experiences. Because one of the challenges is that most disability offices provide you know, supports for folks who are in the classroom, whether 
it's a note taker, whether it's extra time, et cetera, we've talked about that. But where the, the waters get sticky and a bit muddy is when you're also, for example, an employee. So you're a research assistant or a teaching assistant, mm. because now you're this sort of double, double agent. You're a student, but you're also an employee. So who's responsible to provide your accommodations? How do you set those conversations up? Um, and I think one of the challenges is having that clear pathway. So, you know, accessible education might say, well, go to human resources and human resources might say, well, you're a student, go to accessible education. So finding those pathways, I think, you know, also when it comes to placements and practicums, again, as the student, you're doing that extra work of educating your placement supervisor about here's what I might need in terms of supports. Um, so it's a little bit difficult because some of the accommodations perhaps you used in school aren't necessarily going to be um, applied to your placement or you might have difficulty sort of figuring out what those accommodations are. Elizabeth, one of the themes that's popped up a couple times in a few conversations this week about the workplace is the limiting of opportunities for people in equity-seeking groups, right? That maybe you, <laughs> you you finish your undergrad degree, maybe you get that TA opportunity or research assistant opportunity, but then you ram into these barriers. How does it end up yes. limiting the opportunities for people to advance to find themselves in decision-making positions that might start smashing away those barriers for the next generation? Yeah, I mean, it's a real problem. I know in my very first year, I was actually told, um, we'll give you just take the money and run. We're not going to be able to accommodate a TA position, but we'll give you the funding. But I wanted the experience. Yeah, and so yeah. I think, yeah, exactly. And so I think because well, yeah, it's because it's because it's going to be held against you if you don't have exactly. the experience, right? Oh, well, you know, uh, Elizabeth doesn't have initiative. She didn't do her work as a TA. Exactly. Or Elizabeth can't apply for a faculty role. Um, and I think what we're doing is band-aiding. We're band-aiding by saying, well, we'll still fund you or, you know, we'll give you um, a workaround. And most of us don't want that. What we want is the accommodation. So I think right at the get-go, looking at those job descriptions from the lens of equity-deserving groups to say what's missing here. So in my case, I wanted the TA ship, so I actually wrote a letter to our department chair. I explained what I could do. So, you know, I could run seminars, I could mark papers. I talked about the barriers around proctoring, you know, a hundred and something person exam and marking scantrons and why that wouldn't work. And then I listed, I did the research to list courses where I thought I could be a TA, but that's a lot of disclosure and it's a lot of extra work. And so mm. I think when you, back to your initial question, we need to have conversations early on with grad students who might have additional barriers or might be from equity-deserving groups to figure out, you know, where would you excel and wait, how can we support that as opposed to, you know, we'll, we'll find a workaround. So being more proactive instead of reactive. Uh, along those lines, Elizabeth, and maybe this is the big core question around this entire conversation, colleges are at least perceived, colleges and universities from the outside are perceived as enlightened places of higher learning. <laughs> and it's all these woke, yes. inclusive people, like, you know, just humming around, playing hacky sack and guitar. But that's not the actual experience on the ground for people who are in these communities. No. Why do you think universities and colleges are still struggling to remove the barriers? They're centuries old. Like if you, um, Sarah Ahmed is a scholar I like, and she talks about working on the university. And she talks a lot about, you know, what bodies traditionally belong and don't belong. And I say that because change is slow. And the problem is a lot of people still making the decision power at the top 
aren't from these equity deserving groups because of all the barriers we talked about, you know, and it's, I am starting to see change. So I know that the education standard here in Ontario has not been um, implemented, but it, it certainly has been released and schools are aware of the recommendations. So I know some institutions are starting to make those changes. I think another culture is just who do we see in our spaces? So like, I think about hard advocacy. So that's things like, you know, developing policy around, um, you know, accommodations for a TA. So doing that hard advocacy, but soft advocacy is me or you, Dave, standing up in front of a class and lecturing because we're not traditionally supposed to be in those spaces. And that's what I'm starting to see, but we need to see more of. That's the shift we need to see in order for change to happen is more of us um, in those positions through sort of soft advocacy. And I think also another thing is bringing students and student leaders to the table and that's starting to happen, but it still doesn't happen enough. Like you'd think for institutions that are, you know, for students, students would be sort of in those decision-making yeah. conversations, but not as much as, as you'd think. Elizabeth, uh, I appreciate you including me as someone who could lecture in front of a classroom, but I don't think Professor Dave has much to offer for his students other than how Fair. to set a good fantasy football lineup or put together a great football betting parlay. So, oh, uh, Lions. So, yeah, well, oh, maybe we can get to that too. You know, I'll, pull, I'll, years. I'll, I'll pull back the curtain here. Elizabeth has been sending me a lot of emails about football, and it's been delightful. Delightful. It's a real <laughs> relationship building here. Elizabeth, you, you alluded to a couple of positive changes. Go a bit deeper, because I think this conversation maybe runs the risk of being so dour that it seems like there's no Absolutely. hope whatsoever. What yeah. are the positive changes? Because again, you're there. You're on, you're in the halls of academia every day. Yeah. You're working for advocacy groups. There is positive change to report. There is positive change. Yeah, so I've talked about the education standards before, so I won't go too deep, but just to explain that there are standards that are being rolled out. I'm also seeing a lot of institutions um, where the Office of EDI or Equity, Diversity, Inclusion is actually doing um, the work of bringing student representatives into those conversations, hiring students from equity-deserving groups to be in those leadership roles. We have a wonderful initiative at Western. We're developing a, a faculty guide around accessibility, as well as a guide for students who are new to our halls and campuses around accessibility. And that guide is developed by and for students and faculty and staff with disabilities. The other really great thing that I'm seeing is a lot more... Um, community building and peer support. So out at uh, University of Victoria, they have a wonderful initiative led by students for students, um, peer support for new students with disabilities. They've got a food bank out there. They have um, a whole host of events. So I'm starting to see this almost rising up of collective advocacy from students by students in a really wonderful way um, because we're being the change that we wanna see. Um, you know, I think the other thing I'm starting to see is more diverse course offerings. So, you know, I took a research methodology course that was all about arts-based methods. So I think it's starting to happen. I think the, the tide is starting to rise. I think is it as slow as, um, perhaps fast as I would like? Not, but I am starting to see those changes. And I think the other thing that I'm starting to see is language on program websites about if you need accommodations, contact us. At Western, we've just revamped for grad students' art admissions process um, to reflect 
what it would look like if you were applying as someone that had some academic challenges and perhaps needed to take um, more time or perhaps your grades weren't where you wanted them to be. So those those changes are there and I want to I want to emphasize the positive as well. Well, now I'm once again feeling seen with the alphabet soup that was my McGill transcript, but uh, let's not go too deep into that. Don't want people uh, no, sweeping under we we football. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we don't, I didn't know K's and J's existed, but oh man, Elizabeth, they uh, they do. <laughs> they do. Okay. Uh, J for jump. Yeah, J, yeah, J for a jump to a different career option than political science. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth, okay. uh, let, let's have a little bit of fun here on the way out the door. You're in Vancouver today, my favorite city in the whole country. What brought you to Vancouver? I'm doing a training for FireSmart BC. So the folks at FireSmart BC actually provide information and resources to people to, well, be smart when it comes to fires. So this is everything from cleaning up your yard, how to evacuate during a forest fire, um, just how to manage your home to be safe around fire and fire safety. And what's really great is they've asked for the accessibility lens. So I'm going to be speaking to them today with a colleague about, you know, what to think about when you're providing resources and training about fire safety when you have people with a disability that are in your audience. So your videos need to actually have sound. So I there's one video where it's all music and uh, it's showing how mm. to evacuate safely. But um, so we're going to talk about all those great things. Yeah, I've been on a few airplanes over the years where I'm like, can you actually tell me what this process is if I need to evacuate this thing? You know, <laughs> give, me, give me a little more insight here. I need words, not music. Uh, Elizabeth, one last thing here on the way out the door. It's the daily poll question today at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. In Edmonton, they are raising the price of a single use paper bag when you go to a store. It's going up to 25 cents. Uh, the question, the question on the poll is, have you gotten used to bringing your own reusable bags? But Elizabeth, instead of asking you sort of that directly, you can answer it indirectly. Take me into your kitchen. How many reusable bags are in the <laughs> Molar kitchen right now? There are so many in the Molar kitchen. I have a designated drawer with <laughs> reusable bags. Yeah. <laughs> and I keep trying to pawn them off on people. Like I make meals for some folks at our church that aren't able to do that independently. And every time I'm like, I'm going to bring the meals in a reusable bag. And guess what I get back the next week? The <laughs> yeah. reusable bag. It's like the haunting of the bag. We had a representative of Meals on Wheels on in the first hour of the show. And I was telling her that that's my strategy, right? I bring stuff to people's houses. Here, it's in this reusable nope. bag. Hey, Dave, you want to bring this home? Nope. You keep that. Baby, and never, come back. Yeah, and, ne and never talk to me again, right? Like, I drop off That's a right. reusable bag, and I say, we can't be friends anymore because That's you right. might try to get this reusable bag back to me. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you for this. Always appreciate talking to you. <laughs> you too, Dave. You have a wonderful, wild, and wacky Wednesday. I'll do my best. Safe travels uh, coming back from Van City. That's Elizabeth Moeller, founder of EM Disability Consulting. Coming up after the break, I'm going to ask Ramya Amuthan and Nazreen Abdelmajid the poll. Rumia is going to tell you what's coming up on Kelly and Rumia later today. Alex Smythe has a pretty important topic for the roundtable all about the state of Canadian health care. So lots coming your way over the course of the next uh, 20 minutes or so on Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's a Wednesday edition of Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. 
always a delight when Studio 7 gets filled in with company. There's a big company event going on today, so Ramya Amuthan popped into the building a little bit early, and it was decided that Ramya would have to bear sitting next to me in my odor and my stench. Good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. There's no odor or stench in oh, here. Oh, there's oftentimes an odor and stench, okay. but uh, but you know we do I our don't best. Know what you did today. Well, yeah, I, I did shower because you know the the, v, the, the nice. VPs and the president of the company are here today. So right, so, you special know, occasion. I can only look so disheveled when the power brokers are around. Uh, Ramya, before I ask you what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya this afternoon, I want to hit you with the daily poll question at Access. Media on X at Accessible Media Inc. on Twitter. It's all about reusable bags and single use bags. The city of Edmonton is raising the cost of a single use paper bag to 25 cents when you go to a store. Mm. I'm not going to make you react to that story per se. What I am going to make you do is paint a picture of your kitchen for me. You are noted minimalist, Ramya Amuthan. Yeah. But are you able to stay minimalist on reusable bags? Well, everybody has a junk drawer, right, Dave? And <laughs> my junk drawer is filled with reusable bags. I actually have a an entire shelf. It, it's not in my kitchen. It's in my, like, linen closet, okay. so to speak. Okay. And it is just reusable bags of all sizes, shapes, <laughs> fabrics, uh, the densities. Like, I don't even know what to tell you. It's just reusable bags central in there. And um, I just grab and go whenever I can. But the worst part is... I'm not used to it yet. Like it's been how yeah, many years yeah. that we've been talking reusable bags and and uh, my the metro that I shop at near me has completely gotten rid of plastic bags. So if I don't bring a reusable bag with me to work, You're then with another. me to metro, then I'm buying another. Yeah, exactly. another and another and another. Uh, yeah, right now I've, I've got a similar experience. The bag full of bags, yep. and I really only have two favorite bags. Like, oh, like, I've that's got two... another thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm always digging for my favorite one. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got this one. It's cloth. It's amazing. It's actually made by my friend's company called Simcoe Pack. They're actually, oh. a, they're actually a bag company. Yeah, we're company. supporting friends with Reusable Yeah, bags. well, listen, yep. Simcoe Pack, like, you guys do good work. And sometimes regular listener Ben uh, watches and listens to the show. So if he's watching right now, nice. he might send me a shekel or two for giving them the shout-outs or at least buy me a beer. So, you know, Simcoe Pack, we'll they do good work. Bag. Check them out for your bag needs. Uh, but I've, they've got this awesome cloth bag that I love, and I've got one other food basics bag that I like, and then otherwise I've just got a bag of useless yep. reusable bags sitting there in the bag, but I'm not going to throw them out, because that's that's as wasteful as throwing out Why a plastic do bag. That? I wish we could, like, resell them or recycle them or something. Like, I'm getting to the same issues that I would have had with oh, any like a other deposit, thing. Like a deposit yes. on cans or bottles. Yeah, something. <laughs> You know what Laura Bain said she did when she answered the daily poll question in the first hour of the show? She said that last year she made a donation to like a clothing drive mm. and included a bag of reusable bags that maybe they'd be able to give to that's say like proper. to give to like the local uh, food pantry or food bank or something. Yeah. Which that strikes me as a really good idea, and I'm now going to look into that to see too. if there's if there's Thank need. You. Uh, I want to bring Nazreen Abdelmajid on this one as well. Nazreen, you are someone who claims not to be a clutterer, but I don't believe you. What's you the don't believe me. I do not believe you. What's the state of your reusable bag situation in the new apartment there? And when I tell you this, you really won't believe me. Um, so I have, a, I have a drawer, as Remya said. I have a big drawer full of reusable bags. And I've come to the point where I refuse to buy another bag from the grocery store. I refuse it. Living in a condo, I am learning this. I'm still kind of learning Space. when to take my bags down. <laughs> yeah. No, oh, it's yeah. it's oh. when I have to go shopping because sometimes we'll do like quick shopping. So we're 
we don't think to bring bags down or keep it in the car. And I always say, let's keep a lot in the car. So when we need it, we can have it. But we always forget, always yeah. forget. Yeah. And we will break an arm. So instead of making two trips up and downstairs. Oh, yeah. So we'll, we'll hold everything all at once. We'll be like running upstairs. And and I I refuse to come back down to the car and carry more stuff so that's 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 what it is okay, but i well refuse that, to like, buy that's any like, more that's bags. like an even like different level of stubbornness mm. to say to say like forget just the bag situation you're like i don't care if i drop this jar of pickles i don't care i don't care i will not buy another bag i'll go buy five more dollars worth of pickles but not this one dollar bag mm-hmm. uh, yeah but what's the worst problem to have right like they're breaking their arm once a two weeks we're buying like seven bags yeah we're, well, I, 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 well i'm not i'm not at the point now where i just walk around like a total loser with a school bag all the time and I just have reusable bags in my school bag. And I don't care. That's that smart, think, though. That's wow. awesome. Yeah, yeah, you should have your reusable bags everywhere as not to forget to bring them. But I don't mm-hmm. want to drag my school bag around everywhere with me, right? Like, yeah, it's, like it's something that I can lose. I go to bars a lot. Like, you know, there's factors. There's factors that go along with carrying a school bag all the time. I do want to give a shout out here, though, because I want to go with this idea of proactivity because sometimes it's one thing for us to, you know, get together and kibitz and kvetch like a couple of yentas. But every now and then you've got to, like, you've got to really, like, think about these things. There are reusable bags that are made of more nylon or thinner materials mm-hmm. That you can really pack down into into small little things that could even fit into a jean pocket or fit into a coat pocket or fit into a cargo short pocket. So these are the kinds of things that become real worthwhile investments because they can be packed down so small and then utilized on your day to day. So Mm -hmm. listen, you're still going to forget it from time to time, but at least you can think about the process. It's almost like when uh, when you used to keep a mask in your back pocket during the pandemic. It was just sort of there with you and you stopped Mm -hmm. noticing it after a while. I was going to say poop bags, yeah. It's like how I have poop bags for Glasgow everywhere oh, I go. Oh, for your dog, yes. Yeah. I was like, I was like, Romeo, <laughs> what accusations are you making about no. me? I am a civilized man. I'm a civilized the man. Dog. Okay. Uh, Nazreen, hold hold your horses for a second. Romeo, got to get Alex in here in a second, but what's coming up on Kelly and Romeo today at 2 p.m. Eastern time? Yep. Okay, so it's not going to be me on the show today, actually. I'm dipping out, and Brock Richardson's going to be filling in with Kelly McDonald, and they will check in with Greg David, uh, who's going to talk about The Sopranos, because the show's celebrating 25 years. Wow, wow. Yeah, so entertainment, of course, but also the history and cast and overall impact on pop culture. Uh, plus, they're going to talk to Beth Deer on The Buzz, and she's The Buzz got, with Beth! The Buzz with Beth! It makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, she's going to highlight some really odd competitions out there. So not like world record, the Guinness World Record, but other things out there that people will strangely compete for. Uh, And mental health talk. There's a lot of mental health in the workplace chat that we need to have, Mm. I think, especially around January, February. Yeah, Yeah, and we'll talk about that more with Alicia Yardley uh, from HR. Strange competitions. In the first hour of the show, community reporter Derek Lackey stopped by to talk about the Festival du Voyageur in Winnipeg. And, uh, Ramya, there's a beard-growing contest that oh. they do, a beard-growing contest. Not for any good cause or anything, just... Well, I think it's part of, like, celebrating like, the culture and, like, the notion of nice. being, like, a, a portage individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I attended an Oktoberfest a couple of years ago, there was a wife-carrying contest. And I, uh, I I did not have a wife at the time, but I did borrow a woman who I thought could carry. I thought I could carry. Uh, we didn't win. Did you win? Oh, okay. No, we did not win. What um, would you win, especially for the beard growing? I was hoping it was, oh, for the beard? Uh, hopefully a razor or maybe yeah, some, like, beard, beard oils. Care? Yeah. I was going to say at Oktoberfest, you'd win beer. Uh, that's okay, kind of what yeah, I assumed yeah, they yeah. would give us. Okay, Ramya, don't go too far. 
far, Nazreen, hope you haven't strayed too far either. Alex Smythe been having a lot of fun here, but you've got a pretty serious topic for the roundtable. Yeah, there's nothing quite like putting a damper on a fun conversation to end the show on a Wednesday, Dave. But uh, this was uh, a story that you uh, kind of highlighted at the top of the show, and it was something that caught my attention as well. It was the fact that 7 out of 10 Canadians worry that they won't have access to good quality health care if they or their family are ever in need of it. And Laura Osman has the report. The poll by Leger comes nearly a year after the federal government signed a new health accord with provinces to address the severe shortage of health care workers. Provinces are now starting to sign one-on-one -on -one deals with the federal government for the money, but only 17% of people surveyed said they felt the state of health care is likely to improve in the next two years. People in Alberta and B.C. were more likely to say their health care systems were good, while people in Atlantic Canada and Quebec were more likely to rate them as poor. Laura Osmond, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. So obviously this report is uh, very split depending on where you are regionally. Given that we are all in Ontario, I think it's an interesting comparison between uh, the four of us. So I wanted to find out how do you feel about your current access to healthcare? Ramya, we'll start with you. Uh, so my current access to healthcare, I'm not necessarily complaining about, but I really think th that for me to answer this fairly, I got to look at experiences that I've had with family members. Um, my dad has been in and out of the the hospital for all kinds of reasons and all, all kinds of units as well, like departments. Mm. And it has been rough, uh, to say the least. Through the pandemic, we struggled a lot. And, um, you know, for various reasons, including just communication as some of the, the most basic things, and then the quality of care and not being able to express what we need or get priorities for what we need. And it's really, really frustrating. And I think that um, with this report, when we're comparing like province to province or different areas of Canada, I really would like to dig in deeper about why that is, why certain communities and cities are like, yeah, we're, we're doing really well with healthcare. And then others are like, no, not at all. Um, I wonder more about that. Yeah, I, I think getting Nizreen's perspective on this is an important one. Nizreen, how would you describe access to care? Yeah, as someone who goes to the doctor regularly, goes to the hospital regularly almost every week, um, I have some complaints, uh, although that I do really appreciate the healthcare in Canada. I mean, compared to America, comparing to other countries, we have it good. Um, we could have it better, for sure. We could have it better in terms of long waiting times for um, consultations, for scans, uh, operations, scans, everything. operations. Yeah. So I'll have an MRI scheduled six months after I uh, have this issue, have an issue. And either I forget about what the issue was about with what the MRI was about or the pain is just too much to wait that long. And even even non-urgent sur uh, surgeries I have complaints about because um, there was uh, an incident last year that I needed uh, I needed a surgery and the pain was a lot, but they told me it was a four year wait list. Oh my gosh! And and at that point, you really think you really get to thinking, um, this could be better. This could be better if somebody was going through that much pain or so much pain. Like even if it's not in my situation. Um, if it's a family member, like you feel helpless at this point, you need uh, tests, you need you need something to happen, you need action. And I feel like there's a lack of communication, there's a lack of 
respect a lot of the times between patients and doctors. Um, and, and I'm not saying all healthcare workers, like uh, there's no pointing fingers at that point. Um, but I'm so, I'm so tempted to accuse you of that, but no, I'm not going to do it. No, no, no. I'm not. Nazreen doesn't like nurses. (laughs) Nazreen stands against nurses. No, no. I've had wonderful nurses. I've had wonderful doctors, but there was so many incidents where I went to the emergency room and there was just a lack of communication, a lack of respect. Um, the treatment was so poorly and, and it was different hospitals. So the fact that it's not just one specific hospital is a problem there. Alex, you talked about regionality. Now, as I tell this anecdote, it's important to note that I have not grappled with the health system since I moved to Toronto. I've not grappled with the health system since 2019. But I found in Ottawa, getting a specialist was hard, but getting taken care of for basic things was really easy. And I've not endeavored incredibly hard since moving to Toronto, but I think even just space, the amount of time I would have to travel to get to places would strike me as a barrier. In Ottawa, you could do a full lap through the downtown from an Apple Tree Connect to a blood testing place to an imaging place, and you could do it all in sort of two hours. I feel like the space in Toronto would limit how you feel about your experience interacting with the system. Yeah, and I, I think one thing that everyone's kind of mentioned, and I think is interesting, it's there's obviously there's the differences in, in the type of care, type of service you're trying to see. It sounds like, for the most part, the primary care, like the, the initial contacts are are pretty reliable. People have had good experience. Well, I, don't, I, have, I, don't, I, don't have a, I don't have a family doctor. I used to just go to an apple tree clinic. Well, and, and, and that is a difference as well. Like, so I've been very fortunate. I've had uh, a primary care physician like my entire life, uh, essentially. And I've had it where um, I was concerned because ours was retiring, but then thankfully we found uh, someone else to take over the practice. That was very fortunate. But I know for, for myself and like my, my grandma who lives with us, she, is, she has a number of different doctors, a number of different specialists she has to see. And, and this really goes to the point of what Nizreen and Rami have both talked about. It's like trying to get those specialists, trying to find and navigate all these different situations that even if you have that initial positive interaction with, with one specialist, one primary care physician, the system overall there's so many barriers hurdles that you have to advocate for yourself you have to know what to ask how to kind of push forward and then even if you get the right answers or you you are in line for treatment as Jean says it could be months or even years away that you can actually get that and I think that's really where the struggle is within this report and what Canadians overall are feeling Ramya there's two dentists in our office building wouldn't it be nice if we could swap out one of the dentists for a family doctor yes. like wouldn't that be sweet and convenient yes and a family doctor who isn't full and has like an eight thousand dollars uh, person waiting list. Yeah, you know, like, like who actually nice. like comes down and knocks on the door here on the second floor of the building and goes, hey, anybody need a family doctor? Oh, Ramya Dave? I'm so down. <laughs> took me forever to find a family doctor, by the way. And I yeah. basically feel like I settled. Yeah, I, yeah. I've been looking into one of these uh, family health facilities, like mm-hmm. one of these team health facilities uh, down at Eglinton and Don Mills. But even that, they're like, here's a million pieces of paperwork to do. I'm like, you know what? I'll just I'll just take some Neocitrum when I'm sick. No matter (laughs) what the ailment is, I'll be fine. Uh, Ramya, love having you in studio next to me. I mean, in theory, this is your studio too, but it's currently it's currently my setup. So uh, so I'm on your territory. It feels very different, by the way. Like this does does not feel like the same space at all. Well, you know, it's because of uh, the the joy that emanates from me. Right. Uh, Clearly.
Exactly. Thank you for this. Thank you. <laughs> That's all the time there is for the show today. Don't worry, things kick off again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time right here on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv or on the digital airwaves of AMIplus.ca or maybe you like the on-demand experience of the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.